Hello, everyone, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly St. Luke's podcast. I am Pastor Melissa, and I am excited to be with you for another week in the Gospel of Mark. Now, we're continuing our Lenten series on dying to live and hearing through each chapter of this gospel what Jesus invites us to die to in order to fully experience the resurrection when we get to Easter. So this week we're in Mark chapter 12. Um, Grab your Bible or Bible app and let's get started. Now I'm going to start um, again this week with a key verse, a key by which to read the whole chapter and to get into our theme for this week. It's chapter 12 and we're actually starting with verses 38 through 40. As he was teaching, he said, watch out for the legal experts They like to walk around in long robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the markets. They long for places of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. They are the ones who cheat widows out of their homes. And to show off, they say long prayers. They will be judged most harshly. Now this week, our theme we are looking at is facade. The ways that these religious leaders that Jesus began calling out from the very beginning of the gospel. Remember last week's quote from Mark 1 that he taught not as the religious leaders, but as one with authority. Well, this week we're looking at those religious leaders even more in depth than we did last week. And the way that maybe they put up a little bit of a facade that Jesus might start to tear down. So this week we start to see the implications of that authoritative teaching from Jesus, the way that his teaching with authority of the divine not only overshadows these religious and political authorities of his day, and his teaching also begins to reveal that they are all hiding behind some kind of mask or facade to protect them and to present a false front to the world in order to maintain their worldly power. So while it's not quite a Markin sandwich like we had last week with the story of the fig tree, when you look at Jesus' final interaction in Mark 11 about authority, the one we ended on last week, and then how he wraps up teaching in Mark 12 with this passage we just heard about long robes and desire for places of honor, as well as a story about a widow, all the stuff in between comes into even fuller focus. So let's dig into this week's chapter. Now, When we start with chapter 12, um, it's important to remember that this actually continues the sequence that we began in the last chapter. Remember how Jesus cleansed the temple, threw out the money changers, had a little bit of an altercation with a fig tree, and then put the Pharisees in their place regarding his understanding of authority. And in true Jesus fashion, he continues by telling them a story. So let's start with chapter 12, verse 1, uh, with this parable. Says Jesus spoke to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. Then he rented it to tenant farmers and took a trip. When it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But they grabbed the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, the landowner sent another servant to them, but they struck him on the head and treated him disgracefully. He sent another one, and that one they killed. The landlord sent many other servants, but the tenants beat some and killed others. Now the landowner had one son whom he loved dearly. He sent him last, thinking, they'll respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to each other, this is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they grabbed him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So what will the vineyard owner do? 
He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. They wanted to arrest Jesus because they knew he had told the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, because we know the rest of the story, we probably read this and saw a pretty clear allegory. This parable certainly and obviously mirrors God's relationship with humanity, sending prophet after prophet and finally sending his son whom he loves, who, as we know, will happen in just a few chapters to come, is killed. We see the history of Israel and we see its future here as well. There is much to say about the contents of this parable, but like most of this chapter, I want to keep focused on its context. Because while we're a week ahead in our timeline and we just saw a new chapter start in the text, this moment actually follows immediately after the end of chapter 11. Jesus and his followers are still in the temple. Jesus has just said, I am not going to tell you where my authority comes from. And then he follows immediately with this story. This is a continuation of that scene, not the beginning of a new one. And so the Pharisees and the scribes and the legal experts are still standing there, just having been shut down already once by Jesus. And this is how he continues the conversation. Again, they, he continues to, to call them out publicly. Again, they find themselves fearful of the crowd. And again, Jesus is meeting them on their own turf. You see, Jesus in this parable brings up imagery that those around him would have been familiar with. This image of the earth as God's vineyard comes from the prophet Isaiah. Listen to some of these words from Isaiah 5. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten grapes. So now you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. When I expected it to grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? Now let me tell you what I'm doing to my vineyard. I'm removing its hedge so it will be destroyed. I'm breaking down its walls so it will be trampled. I'll turn it into a ruin. Whew. If they got that reference from Jesus' discussion of a vineyard, no wonder they were afraid. They would also have known that this practice of tenant farming um, was one that, that was common in their area because while the owner of a vineyard had a right to it, if the tenants didn't believe the owner was living up to his side of the bargain, the tenants could claim the vineyard as their own. There are even legal documents from this time outlining how this practice occurred, including the kind of violence we see in Jesus' parable, sometimes even against widows or the physically impaired by those who wished to seize their property. Now, side note, keep that in mind as we continue, as Jesus highlights other injustices around the temple. But in the same vein, if the tenants didn't live up to their end of the bargain, the owner had the right to replace the tenants as well. And this is the prophecy that Jesus is declaring for these religious leaders. While Jesus acknowledges their authority, he charges them with abuse of that authority. And the ultimate authority is not them. See, God's not happy with how they're running the vineyard. And at this point, throwing out the tenants doesn't just mean replacing the leaders. It means reestablishing the entire community. And that's what we know Jesus has come to do. But the context here is not just that Jesus is subjugating these leaders' authority. He's doing it publicly. 
He's showing the way that they are using the things God instituted over time, law, temple, tithing, not for God's purposes, but for their own. He's showing that they aren't concerned about God's word at all. They're just using God's law to maintain their image, their own prestige, their own traditions. Now we continue and we see the pattern continue as these leaders still have not learned their lesson. They are still out to trap Jesus, so blinded by their own charades that they can't see he will continue to best them. So the next question emerges, moves to questions about money and taxes. We start here with verse 13. They sent some of the Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're genuine and you don't worry about what people think. You don't show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. So, does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? Since Jesus recognized their deceit, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a coin. Show it to me. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. His reply left them overcome with wonder. Now again, they demand Jesus give them a ruling on how to follow the law, the law that they use as their weapon, the thing they hide behind to maintain their perceived power. They are trying to unmask Jesus when he turns their words on them again to begin to pull their masks away instead. This time it's Pharisees and Herodians that are Jesus' challengers. Now Pharisees were Jewish religious leaders whose authority came from strict adherence to the law both written and oral. The Herodians are only mentioned a couple more times in the Gospels, so we don't know a lot about them, but we do know they must have been attached somehow to the court of Herod, so these would have been civil civil political leaders of some sort. Now they ask Jesus about this tax. Now the tax they would have been asking about would have been a poll tax. It was levied by the Romans on every adult in the census, and it could only be paid with a specific type of coin a silver denarius from the imperial mint. Now, unlike the, the regular coins that would have been used by your average people on a daily basis, um, those average coins wouldn't have been imprinted. These special coins were imprinted with the emperor's head on one side, and on the other side, a female figure wearing a crown and holding a scepter in one hand and an olive or a palm branch in the other, possibly to represent an embodiment of peace. Now, this tax and paying this tax is the only reason the average citizen would have had to acquire one of these coins. And yet, Jesus' questioners here produce one with little trouble. (laughs) Maybe they are doing a lot more hobnobbing with the elite than they would want the average citizen to know. But the key is that the question of this coin um, poses a challenge. You see, for the Herodians, if people stopped paying taxes, that would be detrimental to them. Now, the Pharisees went along with it, even though they didn't like it, but they asked this question because the question of this tax was a hot-button issue at the time. The tax was unpopular with the common people, and the resistance was a sore subject with the Roman authorities. So again, the questioners think they have Jesus in a a moment where he can't possibly give a right answer. 
because if he says, pay the tax, he will offend all of the crowds that have been following him. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, they have Caesar's face on them. They can come after him for inciting rebellion. He's sure to be trapped by this one, they're thinking. But as per usual, Jesus quickly replies in a, ways that in a way that shows that these coins are of no consequence to people's faith. Give them to Caesar, he says. But don't forget to give to God what is God's. Now, it may sound like a flip answer, but when examined even further, Jesus is again pulling back the curtain on these religious and political leaders. You see, he diffuses the political tension inherent in the question. And in the process, is trying to remind them, both his followers and maybe these religious leaders, that the things of God should be given to God and God alone. Note that he actually doesn't come out neutral on the topic. This wasn't an either-or scenario. If the question was one of choosing to give something of God's to Caesar, Jesus might have had a different answer. But in this situation, he says that this tribute coin was not of consequence something that, that Caesar himself made, and so we can gladly give it back to Caesar. Not only do these leaders seem to be hiding behind the curtains of righteousness, they also seem to be trying to create political distractions for the people so that they won't realize how they're being duped either. So we come now to the next moment of questioning. Next up, we have the Sadducees stepping up to take their turn at challenging Jesus and trying to catch him in a legal conundrum. Now, I'm not going to go into detail of this particular moment. I want to summarize it very quickly. Now, the Sadducees are an aristocratic group of priestly families, um, and it would be from this group that the high priest would be chosen. Now, theologically, resurrection is a point of contention for them, as unlike the Pharisees, they only accept the Torah as authoritative um, as far as the law and not the prophets or the writings of the Hebrew scriptures. And theologically, they also don't believe in the doctrine of resurrection. So, of course, they ask Jesus a question about the resurrection and what happens to married or remarried people when they're resurrected. I do have to read you one part of Jesus' response, because if this isn't the most Gospel of Mark, rough Jesus, snarky response you can imagine, I don't know what is. So Jesus opens his response and it says, Jesus said to them, isn't this the reason you're wrong because you don't know either the scriptures or God's power? <laughs> wow, Jesus, just start with clearly you're wrong and it's because you don't understand anything at all. He continues to quote scripture and continue to tell them just how they how wrong they are. And he ends with, you are seriously mistaken. <laughs> Oof. The summary response Jesus gives them is that they are hiding behind a doctrinal dispute that is simply a moot point. The things of earth are not the things of heaven. Jesus rejects the question entirely because he rejects the idea that the human institutions, the very ones that they are choosing to create smoke and mirrors about to maintain their authority and credibility, will not continue into eternal life even if they choose to believe in it. So the question itself is moot, and it shows that they clearly don't understand either the law or God's power. <laughs> Whew. They, he really gives them a run for their money. So we continue with one final challenger for Jesus. Only things take a little bit of a turn here because this time it's a scribe or a legal expert who chooses to approach Jesus. But this guy, this guy has been paying attention. 
It says, one of the legal experts, starting in verse 28, one of the legal experts heard their dispute and saw how well Jesus answered them. Ah, he saw how well Jesus answered them. So he comes with what might actually be an honest and authentic question and not just a trap for Jesus this time. It says, he came over and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus replied, the most important one is Israel, listen, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength, quoting from Deuteronomy. He said, the second is this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The legal expert said to him, well said, teacher, you have truthfully said that God is one and there is no other besides him. And to love God with all of the heart, a full understanding and all of one's strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all kinds of entirely burned offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered with wisdom, he said to him, You aren't far from God's kingdom. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Get a much gentler Jesus when it's someone who's really seeking to have a conversation and to understand rather than just to challenge. And the way this scribe responds to Jesus shows that he does affirm Jesus' teaching. And Jesus affirms him as well, telling him he's not far from the kingdom. So while we see mostly in these last couple of chapters, group after group and person after person, Jesus has to call out for all the ways they're misusing the temple and the law and the rituals of God, how they're using them as ways to maintain power and not ways to be faithful, we suddenly see a glimmer of God's grace, a moment of the image of God still within one of them, an honest question, seeking to understand, hmm, Maybe the masks can be removed. Maybe the curtain can be drawn back. Maybe redemption is possible. The scribe even acknowledges that while the rituals of sacrifice may not be completely unnecessary, they are secondary to these greatest commandments. <laughs> A downgrading of the sacrificial system is pronounced by a theologian of the religious establishment, even within the temple itself. Because remember, we are still standing in the temple. As one commentator put it, because they join together in the conviction that there is no commandment greater than love of God and neighbor, they are able to treat each other as neighbors. Both the scribe and Jesus have stepped away from the us versus them categories. Their mutual affirmation is an island of reconciliation in a sea of hostility. The scribe recognizes Jesus as the great teacher, and Jesus recognizes the scribe as a pilgrim moving toward the kingdom. Their lived out common devotion to God and neighbor silences the debate. At the moment when no one dared to ask him any more questions, this scribe at least appears to be open to the possibility of becoming a disciple himself. And we come to the end of the chapter. And we close it with a familiar picture, a widow giving her offering. But just before that, we find the words that we began our journey today with. While redemption is clearly possible, as we saw in this last vignette, Jesus sees far more corruption as the rule with these legal experts rather than the exception. And so he offers a warning, starting in verse 38. As he was teaching, he said, watch out for the legal experts. They like to walk around in long robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the markets 
They long for places of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. They are the ones who cheat widows out of their homes. And to show off, they say long prayers. They will be judged most harshly. And then we hear about the widow after hearing a warning about those who cheat widows. It says Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. Many rich people were throwing in lots of money. One poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth a penny. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change. But she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. And this, this is the ultimate moment where we see the intersection that is at the heart of this whole chapter. The intersection of hypocrisy, literally coming from a word meaning to wear a mask, and piety, or true faithfulness. Now, we most often hear this passage used to highlight the widow's faithfulness, the fact that she didn't need lots of fanfare to give all that she had. And that is absolutely true. Her piety far exceeds that of those who are wealthy giving their measured gifts. I always have a picture of this story being uh, people coming up with giant checks and photos, but that might be a little anachronistic. (laughs) But this isn't just a comparison of the widow and the wealthy givers. This continues Jesus' critique of the religious authorities. The religious authorities who would have told the widow that this was the faithful thing to do. The religious authorities that hold coins of Caesars in their pockets while rubbing elbows with the giant check people. The religious authorities that choose to hold everyone accountable, including attempting to do so with Jesus for following the law. The law that they hide behind. But the law that says an awful lot about how you're supposed to treat widows. In fact, the law they hide behind said the widow should be the center of their concern. The law they hide behind says they should be giving to the widow and not the other way around. The law that they hide behind doesn't look kindly on those who, as Jesus put it, cheat widows out of their homes. Thus, the mask of upholding the law is pulled away by a woman with two coins. Those who claim their identity and righteousness on following the law in any form, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, or Herodians, are all shown naked as a poor widow gives everything she has to the temple. The widow their law declares clearly should be the center of their concern. The widow that their law declares clearly who should be cared for by the temple The widow who their law should drive them to ensure she is never made to be hopelessly poor. She is so faithful herself, with no facade, no mask, no pretense, that she gives literally everything she has, even to those who should be seeking her well-being. Friends, the curtain has been pulled back. The masks have been ripped off. Now, I may be mixing metaphors a little bit, but I'd say the emperor has no clothes. (laughs) And the religious leader's robes are starting to look a little less intact. So what does it mean to die to facade? We've seen how Jesus has forced the religious leaders of his time to do it. And I hope you'll join together with a group this week to talk about that for yourself. 
And I know I'll see you this Sunday in worship as we continue to consider Jesus' call for us to die so that we might live. I'll see you next week.